I'm here with Catherine Todero, Dean of Creighton University's College of Nursing. The Bureau of Labor projects that nursing will be the highest growing profession over the next decade. How is the university preparing to meet this demand? Creighton has done a number of things. One, we've increased our number of traditional nursing students, but we also offer accelerated education on three campuses in Omaha, Hastings Campus in central Nebraska, and our brand new campus, which is in Phoenix, Arizona. Learn more about all of the university's academic programs at Creighton.edu. Welcome, everyone, to Creating a Family, Talk About Adoption and Foster Care. Today, we're going to be talking about the cost of adoption, or more importantly, how you can afford to adopt without going into debt. But first, I want to read a, uh, a comment that we received on this podcast uh, as a way to encourage you to also make comments. This is from Anut Ang, Ang, A-N-G. Uh, she says, from a mother of three adopted children, thank you for your podcasting. I am constantly connecting with the information found in these podcasts and have found it so very helpful post-adoption. That is exactly why we do what we do, and we so appreciate hearing from you telling us that this show matters, uh, making constructive criticism is helpful, giving us topics that you would like to see us cover. That would be extremely helpful. So if you would pop over to iTunes and either give us a star rating, which would take you, come on, guys, maybe one second, two seconds, or uh, writing a few lines, that would be mean the world to us, and it would, it's also really helpful in help, helping other people find us. So please, uh, if you would do that for us, we would so appreciate it. This show, you are listening, as I said, to Creating a Family. I'm Dawn Davenport. I am the director of Creating a Family, and you can find us and all of our resources online at creatingafamily.org. This show is underwritten by Jockey Bean Family Foundation. Their mission is to strengthen adoptive families through post-adoption services. And one way they support adoptive families is through their free backpack program, which provides newly adopted kiddos with their own customized backpack with their initials and filled with a, a Jockey Bean Family bear and a blanket and parenting resources for their parents. Please let your agency know about this backpack program. As I said, it's free. It costs them nothing. And they can get information at the jockeybeingfamily.com website. In addition to our underwriter, we also have agencies who believe in the power of of education and support for strengthening families. Uh, One such agency is Adoptions from the Heart. They have helped build over 6,000 families since 1985. They work with families uh, across the U.S., and they are licensed in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, New York, Delaware, Virginia, and Connecticut. And we truly thank them for their support. As I said, today we're going to be actually have a, a, a star-studded uh, panel uh, to talk to you today about the not so much the cost of adopting, but how the average person is able to afford to adopt. Our guests are Becky Fawcett. She is the executive director of Help Us Adopt. She also blogs over at An Infertile Blonde. And Julie Gum. She is the author of Adopt Without Debt, Creative Ways to Cover the Cost of Adoption, and last but not least, Sherry Waldron. 
She is the Director of Resources for Adoption. All of these women have, are involved in some aspect of making adoption more affordable. This is a re-air of a show we did uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, it is, uh, I know I use the word evergreen a lot, but it is truly an evergreen topic. And the information presented is evergreen as well. I think you're really going to enjoy it. Welcome, Sherry, Becky, and Julie to Creating a Family. Hello. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. I'd like to start with a question we received uh, from one of our listeners. She says, our adoption budget is 25000 Since uh, She says, we have been targeting states that limit birth mother expenses. <clears throat> However, we haven't been too successful because as soon as the birth mother hits the limit, uh, our experience has been that she goes with another adoption agency in another state that has uh, more generous limits. Our adoption professionals tell us that it's just too bad we don't have more resources or a larger budget to allow for additional expenses. Um, she also mentions that they tried for uh, to foster adopt, uh, but that uh, her husband is in the military and they've run into problems with foster adopt uh, because of uh, deployments, uh, movements uh, between bases, frequent moves and things like that, and so it has been a problem. I think she in, in many ways summarizes some of the problems that we have when we're uh, when we are talking about adopting, she's got twenty five thousand and is finding that that's not enough. Now, in fact, it is possible to adopt for 20, domestically for twenty five thousand, and even internationally, it is possible. Although um, you, not all countries, and you would need to research your countries. Let me mention at the onset, uh, because I wanted to anyway, and also this questioner has brought it up, and that is when we're talking about affording adoption, one of the first things I always mention uh, and want to make certain this show talks about or touches on briefly is adopting from the foster care system. Um, the purpose of this show is not to go into an in-depth um, uh, discussion of the different types of adoption from the foster care system. We have many, many, many resources on this option on our site under adoption resources. Just click on foster care adoption. We have done a number of shows on this. You can get all the resources on there, but adopting from foster care is virtually free, um, and it's not for everybody, and our questioner um, has pointed out that there are some problems, particularly with the one method, which is the foster-to-adopt method, um, especially with the military and for other people as well sometimes. But anyway, I do want to, to mention that as well. Sherry, in the uh, pre-show uh, discussion, you mentioned that uh, – you are an adoptive mom. In fact, everybody on this show is an adoptive mom, uh, and that you did go into debt uh, in, during your adoptions. Um, and there are some negative sides to that. So I wanted to just start. If you can just walk us through a little why you should even care to adopt without going into debt. Uh, can you hear me okay? Yeah, you sound just great. Just making sure. Okay, very good. Yeah, thank you for having me on today. Um, the Part of the reason, I would say, is it just makes life a lot less stressful once the child is home. I would not go back and change anything that we did, uh, you know, with our adoptions, and I'm glad that we walked that path, and that's, you know, the path we had to choose. But realistically, um, you know, it is obviously less stressful. There's enough stress that comes along with adopting children and having children in general without adding, you know, the, you know, additional financial uh, limits uh, to the budget and so forth. But, um, you know, there again, I wouldn't change it, but, you know, going yeah. forward from here, I would encourage people to do as much fundraising as they can and try to avoid that if at all possible. If that's the last resort, then I would say, 
then that's what you need to do. But, um, you know, try to find other avenues besides uh, debt first. I would not mm-hmm. let that stop you. Um, right. That's the only thing stopping you. But, you know, it's it's something that's very worthwhile. There are people that go into debt for a lot less worthwhile things in life. I obviously think that's, you know, very worthwhile. But right. it does. I mean, it just realistically okay. does create some uh, additional stress. Yeah. Let's be honest. Starting life with uh, uh, new children or new child and debt uh, is it makes it harder. Julie, I thoroughly enjoyed your book, uh, Adopt Without Debt. Uh, and you suggest, uh, and, and Sherry mentioned fundraising, but before we get to that, you suggest that when trying to come up with the money for adoption, the first place you should start, and you, the, the quote you have is, start with the money you already have. What do you mean by that? Well, the first thing we did when we started to adopt, obviously, was was look at our budget and see where could we trim some expenses and come up with some extra money. And um, because of our uh, you know nine year journey to that point of getting out of debt and paying off our house and all that sort of stuff, we were kind of used to living on um, a a tighter budget, but we had to tighten it down even more. But um, things like, you know, looking at how much money you spend on groceries and eating out and, you know, a lot of people, frankly, don't even have a budget that they live off of right now at all. I so think if you don't a have a budget, point. that's the first thing you need to do is just figure out where your money is going. But um, – Because the national averages, I mean, the average family of four in America spends something like $750 on groceries. And I know people who feed that same family of four for about $300 a month. You know, so, I mean, that's $400 a month right there that you could be paying toward adoption expenses. And over the course of a year, you know, that's close to $5,000. So just taking a look at um, what you're spending your money on now and how you can do things differently for a short period of time to free up some of that money for your costs. You talk about groceries, and and you mentioned that that is – you list a couple of top areas that uh, most people can find ways to cut back on without too much pain. Um, and And you've just mentioned groceries. So let's talk about it. How do you save money on groceries? I got it. Eating uh, beans and oatmeal. Is that <laughs> no, no, it doesn't mean beans and rice every meal. <laughs> um, you know, it comes down to a couple things. I find the key when I talk to other women and friends who are good frugal grocery shoppers is a lot of it is just organization. And for me, that means that I sit down a couple days before payday and I plan out my meals for the next two weeks. And I do it with a calendar in front of me so I know, you know, what nights are going to be really hectic because of kids' school activities that maybe it's just best to plan on making a frozen pizza, you know, or put a meal in the crock pot or something like that to eliminate that last minute like, oh, we don't have time, we've got to stop by McDonald's and suddenly we just spent, you know, 35, 40 bucks on dinner. Um, uh, you know, I thought so that was such an interesting point that you raised and about because the other way, and we should mention that these do go hand in hand, the first, the, the primary way that you can save money is by reducing the amount that you eat out uh, and I know that some of you in places like New York are probably thinking, oh, my gosh, there's no way I can do that. Um, but, in fact, you were talking about how much people spend. And, and something you said that I thought was fascinating was that so much, and it's true as I thought about it uh, for our, from our experience as well, so much of eating out is the spontaneous eating out, kind of that, oh, I don't really feel like fixing dinner. So, anyway, that's, you know, so if you can, if you have a meal plan, uh, what yeah. you're saying is that you are less likely to fall into that, oh, Lord, I'm driving home with four kids in the car from two different soccer practices, and now I've got to come figure out something for dinner. 
Right, right. I always keep some easy meals in the freezer for those nights, even when I had maybe planned to make something different, but the day just got away from me. And there's always, you know, a frozen pizza or, you know, an easy skillet meal or, you know, pan- you know, my kids love breakfast for dinner, pancakes and eggs, and I've always got that stuff on hand. So, um, and that's a cheap way and they love it. So, um, so yeah, eating out, um, and groceries that are like we talked about. So weekly weekly meal plans, and then just mm-hmm. I make a list of the groceries I need to make the the meals that week. I head to the grocery store. Um, I try to stick to the list. I don't go when I'm hungry or got the munchies. Um, and then combining coupons and sales, looking at the sales ad. I Walmart price matches stuff from other grocery stores and. Um, I know if you've ever watched an episode of Extreme Couponing, you know what couponing can do. But I'm not that, you know, I don't have the pantry with 60 tubes of of toothpaste. I only have 10. But um, (laughs) you can save a lot of money with a little bit of time, effort, planning, um, and and work. How much time do you spend on, let's just say, just with your planning of uh, of your meals, your shopping themselves? I mean, because you're mentioning going to more than one store. Although not always, and then and then couponing takes time. So I mean, how much time do you think you spend on that? Um, total in like let's say a two week pay period, which is kind of how I plan my meals. Um, I would say total, I maybe spend three hours, three and a half hours. But that in, you know that includes my grocery shopping, which if I'm doing a big shopping trip at Walmart, which I always leave the kids behind because then you add more stuff to your cart if you have your kids. Oh, yeah. um, I, you know, That's that true. takes an hour right there. So my meal planning is actually relatively easy because I kind of have a running list of all the meals that my family likes and that I cook. And there's actually probably about six weeks worth of meals there. And I can just kind of you know, go through the list and pick out what I have and I look at, you know, if, I, if I'm if i stocked up on chicken because there's been some really great sales lately, then I might make more chicken dishes that, you know, that time or um, or what. So the meal planning itself really only takes me about 30 minutes now. And, and, and because you have spent the time gradually developing that, which, yeah. Right. How much money yeah. do you think uh, both you as well as other people you've talked to have saved? Let's just talk on groceries first. I mean, how much money can you save? Well, you can save three or four hundred dollars a month if I mean depending on what you spend now, but that national average is seven hundred and fifty eight dollars a month for a family of four, and I spend about four hundred and fifty dollars a month for my family of six, so I'm still okay. saving three hundred dollars over the national average so right and you've you've got a couple more kids, of course, your kids aren't all that old, but still you've got a couple more right kids. yeah, they're not teenagers yet, so that's gonna go up a little bit in a few years but and and how much were of course you were this is a hard one because we don't know how many people, what the average person spend, average family spends on eating out, or maybe you do. What does the average family spend on eating out? Do you know in a month? Uh, about two hundred and twenty-five dollars. So you, you know, yeah. and, and I think a lot of that is people who you know eat out at lunch during their workday with their coworkers instead of brown bagging it. You know, one or two meals out with the family. I mean, especially when you have a family, you go to. You know, not fast food, but you go to some place like Chili's or something like that with even just a family of four, suddenly you've spent, you know, $60 on dinner. Um, so it adds up really quick. Yeah, no, we, one of the things that uh, when we were trying to um, save money and, uh, significantly was to cut back on, we were saving to take our, to go on, um, taking, we do work at orphanages and taking a family to travel to an orphanage takes a lot of money. And so we cut back on, 
taking the family out, and we were amazed at uh, how much we could call we could actually save. A, another tip you had that I thought was a good one, and one I have done as well, is keep snacks in your car, because uh, your temptation is to stop when everybody's whiny and starving, and you think, you know what, I just let me just run by uh, Wendy's here and and let everybody grab something. Uh, but even if you grab something small, you've added quite a bit of money. Yeah, um, yeah, and that, uh, keeping snacks in the car isn't easy to do in Phoenix in the summertime, but <laughs> we get creative. <laughs> yeah, I bet that's true. <laughs> do you find that you can save a lot by joining the warehouse stores like Sam's and Costco? You know, that's a tricky one. You have to be really careful with that. We do have um, memberships at Sam. well, both because our tire's on the car at one place, but at Sam's Club. But I am very specific about what I buy there, and I only buy a few items because it's not necessarily always cheaper um, to buy stuff in bulk. And you can walk in there and get, you know, 10 or 12 items, and suddenly you've blown $200, and you can't really make a meal off of those 10 items. They might be ingredients, but um, so there's, you know, there's probably a list of about 10 specific things that I buy at the warehouse club. Some of them are frozen vegetables, milk, eggs, um, hamburger patties. We do a lot of hamburgers. And um, so there's some very specific things I get, but I don't have to get them every month because I do buy them in bulk, and so that helps. So I think you have to be really careful about those. Yeah, and I find that if I I end up filling up my freezer space, and I have, um, as with you, I, I have a large freezer, but... Uh, you know, a standalone freezer, but I fill up my freezer with stuff, and then there, when I double meals, uh, which I often do, to have frozen and that I can whip out, you know, on those days where I see um, either in advance or at the last moment, either one. But my, you know, my freezer is full of stuff that I'm I'm, I'm not using as much. Um, but there are a few things that they have that I really like. <laughs> yeah. uh, you're also an advocate of paying cash for everything, which is interesting. I mean, you literally mean you pay cash for everything, uh, with I guess the exception of, of you know, uh, bills that you have to pay online or in person. Right. Yeah. We um, we went to the Dave Ramsey class years and years ago, and that's one of his things: is once you develop your budget and your household budget that you're going to stick to, really the best way to stick to the budget, which is the second hardest part of the problem, is to pay cash for stuff. And so on payday, I go to the ATM and I get out, you know, whatever my budget says, you know, for groceries, eating out, um, clothing, household stuff, um, buying gifts for people or party stuff or whatever our expenses are that month that aren't, you know, the regular monthly bills. I get out the cash and I have a little um, envelope system wallet that's divided up so my grocery money goes in an envelope and our eating out money because we still do still do it some. Our eating out money goes in one envelope. And and so, you know, it's really easy for me. You know, the kids are, well, can we go to McDonald's? Can we go to McDonald's? And I can look in the eating out envelope and say, well, I don't know, can we all eat for six bucks? You know, and or, you know, sorry, there's no money in that envelope. We've already, you know, ate out for our limit this month. But studies show that paying with plastic, even debit cards, um, people will spend 12 to 18% more than if they pay with cash because there's some emotional attachment to parting with our cash. Um, And so that for us, whenever we get away from that system, we inevitably don't stick to our budget as well. And so we keep, you know, even after 10 years of doing this, you'd think I'd be able to do it without the cash, and I really – 
it's it's a lot harder. So we we use the cash and the envelope system, and and that's how we stick to our budget. I would also just add for those of you with children listening, I have found that cash is for children one of the best ways, particularly as your kids get older, and they're getting having a clothing allowance or, or allowance for for different things. Um, to have them use a cash system too has been very effective. Um, you also suggest taking on extra part-time jobs, maybe even providing, if you're a stay-at-home mom, providing child care for another child or taking on part-time consulting work. Um, I could see that that would be helpful, but it would be hard if both parents, uh, if you're in a couple, it would seem like it would be hard for both parents to be doing that. And if you're a single parent, it would certainly be hard, or a single person um, uh, without children, it would be hard to do that um, as a way of, of um, because you do have to spend time with your children. Right. Yeah, it's not for everybody. Um, certainly you have to look at your situation and, and see, you know, do you have, are all your kids in school and so you could do something during the day? Or, you know, if you've got little kids at home and, and you could just watch one or two other kids during the day to bring in some money and still be with your kids. But, yeah, it's not for everybody, but it's certainly something to um, to consider and to look at. And, you know, if you're going to find a part-time job, look at Starbucks because they have adoption um benefits of like $4,000, so <laughs> it's a good place to start. <laughs> yeah, that is a good place to start, and you can do it part-time as well. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You are listening to Creating a Family, talk about adoption and infertility. Today we're talking about adopting without going into debt, how to afford adoption. Our guests are Becky Fawcett. She is the Executive Director of Help Us Adopt. We have Julie Gum. She is the author of Adopt Without Debt. And we have Sherry Walrod. She is the Director of Resources for Adoption. Okay, now let's talk about a very hot-button topic, fundraising for adoption. Um, I think even I was a bit surprised by how much of a hot-button topic this is. I posted a blog oh, uh, in August. Um, it was Actually, the blog itself was, Dear Abby, you're nuts. Fostering is not the solution for infertility or adoption. Um, and it was my uh, response to a Dear Abby letter, or Dear Abby's response to a letter, uh, talking about um, the uh, somebody had written in saying that her best friend was going to be having, uh, who had, had four failed uh, IVF uh, cycles, uh, now did not have the money for adoption and was uh, going to um, uh, do a fundraiser. And she was that the question itself had you know she, her her basic attitude was that uh, she didn't think that they should be doing a benefit because adoption was a choice and benefits should be on things that like cancer or that, that you have no choice on. That was her. So my my blog was taking off in a d- different direction. Uh, however, of course, part of this was um, the the whole issue of fundraising, and we received almost a hundred comments, uh, most of them discussing exclusively the issue of the appropriateness of fundraising for adoption. And we have our Creating a Family community is a fairly diverse community. We have adult adoptees. We have um, uh, birth parents, first parents. And uh, they were all weighing in on this. And and I was amazed by the diversity of of opinions that exist. Becky, you said that you have an opinion on this, so I would love to hear your thoughts on this. This is Becky Fawcett. Sure. Um, Yeah, I have a fairly strong opinion on this whole fundraising aspect. And with all due respect, um, you know, while I understand that people do do fundraising, i.e. have bake sales, have spaghetti dinners at their church, 
Um, unfortunately, I see a lot of people who sell their home possessions on eBay to fundraise. And I have to say, the whole concept really upsets me um, because it's not a solution to the problem of the high cost of adoption. It's a temporary Band-Aid, and what most people, at least I can speak of from our applicants, because we are an adoption grant program, you know, they all go out. When you're facing bills of, you know, I think an average adoption costs $30,000 plus, um, and based on the thousands of applications we receive a year, I, I think that's a fair number, $30,000, dollars $50,000. You know, that, that's a lot of brownies you're baking, Um I can speak from my own personal experience that I don't think it's a realistic solution. I know plenty of people who need maybe $3,000 to fill the hole, and they are able to do that, and I think that's great. And I've read Julie's book, and I think she has one of those totally magnetic personalities that this was, I'm not saying it was easy, but I think <laughs> she's good at it. She's good at what she does. Um, there are many people out there in this world that are not good at asking for money, that don't have the wherewithal to go out and fundraise to pay for their adoption. And from the people I come in contact with every day, we're not talking about a family of two, three, or four children who's adding on through adoption. We're talking about couples who just want one child. They're childless, and they're faced with these bills, and they already have a second job. Um, so it, it presents this impossibility for them. And, you know, when we, my husband and I created HelpUsAdopt.org, it was to present a solution, and it is stressful to have debt. And uh, believe me, I can't solve this problem single-handedly either. I'm not claiming to, but... Mm -hmm. That's why we created the grant program. I, I mean, I don't want to see people having bake sales to, to have children. I, I don't think it's – I know it's a reality, but that's not the way it should be moving forward. And um, I think that the cost of adoption, you know, with the average household income in our country being, I think it's $54,000, if an average adoption is 30, do the after-tax math. Yeah. You know, most people can't afford this, um, you know, and I live a very fortunate life. And, you know, you're talking financial responsibility. Even my husband and I, when we did our two adoptions, vacations disappeared, dining out disappeared, um, extravagant gifts disappeared. You know, I mean, this was I kept working with my first child when a lot of friends stayed, became stay-at-home moms because I wanted a second. And then there's some, you know, things that happen with adoption, like my daughter's adoption. There were some bumps in the roads. We spent $23,000 more than we budgeted. Um, but once you're in, that's the terrible thing about the world of adoption. The surprise, <laughs> you know, yeah. and it's very difficult. And, I, you know, I did the math to see how many brownies I would have to bake to, to pay for my daughter's $63,000 adoption. And, I mean, it's... Just yeah. the cost alone is is a joke to to come up with that. It's just not a realistic solution, and I understand people do it, but um, 
I just, you know, I, I don't want to give people false hope thinking it's just easy to have fundraisers and pay for an adoption. Because as you said, one of those people's opinions from the Dear Abby was, you know, people, listen, I fundraise for a living to raise money. Now, I don't make a living. I do this on a pro bono basis. But I fundraise every day of my life. And even when you have a cause and a 501c3 organization, people are hesitant to give their money away. So imagine mm-hmm. if it's a friend coming to you and saying, will you help me adopt my child? That's a very it's awkward... A, it's a, it is. It's an interesting... Uh, and uh, a lot of adult adoptees weighed in. Uh, and uh, it's funny because it, it, it caused uh, me to have this discussion with my kids. I said, what do you think? I mean, what's your opinion on this? And it, interestingly, my kids were all like, you know, I think it's great, you know, I mean, from their perspective. But I don't think that, that all uh, older, um, you know, adolescent and, and adult adoptees would agree. Julie, let me, um, uh, you do have, you do talk a lot about uh, fundraising for adoption in your book. And, of course, there's many different types of fundraising, including, you know, uh, anything from a garage sale to as baking brownies or, you know. People can raise a fair amount of money. It's not for everybody because not everybody is is very good at it, but uh, you are in favor of fundraising. Uh, how much can people make? And it, of course, depends on the type of fundraising. Obviously, um, it probably isn't available, uh, realistic for the full cost of adoptions, but you can certainly make some money that way. Well, you know, and, and Becky makes a good point. It's not necessarily the solution to everything, but, you know, I kind of look at it as a piece of the puzzle. And I, I certainly think that fundraising is probably more widely spread in the international adoption community than it is in the domestic, and I'm not exactly sure why that is. It just it just seems to be to me. But I agree um, with you that it you is, know, and I also I, I can I – can, Yes, but I don't want to because that would just be speculation. But I agree with you that I think it is more common, um, which is an right. interesting thought too. Go ahead. Yeah, and and I so you know for us it was a piece of it. It was we looked at our budget and cut back what we could, and then you know we applied for grants. But quite frankly, um, you know, and this is all in, in my story in the book, but. You, right about the time or a few months after we decided to adopt my husband left his job and so our income was cut by two-thirds and so we were barely i mean we were making the bills and we squeezed a few thousand dollars out of our budget but when we applied for grants they were looking at last year's income and um you know we looked really good on paper there and so we didn't get any grants um and so for us we had to turn more towards the fundraising and i don't like it any more than the next person. I didn't, you know, we didn't write letters to friends and family and say, hey, give us money for our adoption, because I was not comfortable with that. There are people who do that, um, but that was not something we were comfortable with. We knew God would provide, and so we did, you know, a garage sale that made $5,000 with friends, and I took on freelance um, design work and did that. But, you know, I do know people who have raised $30,000 to pay for their adoption, and it has all been through fundraisers and friends and family who have just out of their heart because they want to be a part of this. They want to be a part of the story. They want to be a part of of giving a family to a child or giving a child to a family. You know, they want to be a part of that. And so, um, you know, they will give towards those adoption funds. So I do, it's, it's not as common as, you know, people who just raise parts of it, but I do know people who have raised their entire adoption expenses through um, fundraisers and such. So, um, 
you know, I think it's a piece of the puzzle. It's not the solution, but I certainly think it's um, viable. And and my kind of my point in the book is there are lots of different ways to do it. And if you don't want to write letters to friends and you don't want to bake a million brownies, um, you know, do a silent auction dinner. Or there's friends who had a, a karaoke night um, where they just they got the pub donated and the karaoke services, and they made like a whole game out of it where you can you know you pay ten dollars to make a friend sing a Justin Bieber song. And I mean it's a whole hilarious thing. And they had a great time and they raised fifteen hundred dollars. And you know there are ways to do it that aren't out, you know, you don't, you don't feel like a door-to-door, you know, vacuum salesman. Um, and so that's kind of the point in the book is to get some of these ideas across and then to just get people to think creatively about what they can and what they want to do. I have friends who, um, actually a friend from high school who contacted me, and and he wasn't comfortable with the fundraising idea either. And so, But they have a prize rodeo horse that they were going to sell anyways, and it, the horse is worth about $12,000 or so. But instead of selling the horse, they're going to raffle him off at a big horse show. And so they're selling raffle tickets at 50 bucks a pop um, for this horse and hope to raise, you know, a large portion of their adoption, adoption, adoption expenses through that. So, and that idea came to them just because they read kind of the, some of the other ideas in the book and thought, okay, well, how can we apply this to us? So, you know, and I, the what the what I thought of when I was reading uh, that chapter in the book, I did think about. It seemed to be that the ones that were the most successful were the ones that combined where the people who were coming were actually getting something as well. Uh, something that, that was like the karaoke night, a, a really fun night out, um, right. and they were helping somebody. So it was kind of the win-wins that seemed to, in this case, where you know people get to you know bid on uh, the the raffle of a of a of a, of a racehorse. Uh, for some people, that would be a, a fun thing to do. It would be a win-win. Well, you know, it's, if you're going to bid on the lottery, well, that's one. You know, this is a, just another version of that, and um, and that would would be actually fun for them. So. Right. It did seem that those were the ones who, which, but keep in mind that fundraising is time-consuming as well. And uh, yeah, so I mean, you may, for those people who really uh, just are uncomfortable with that, it might make sense to be doing extra work uh, that you're working, getting paid for your work, because you're going to be putting in a fair amount of time to organize a fundraiser one way or the other. Right. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, some of them are easier. I mean, a garage sale, who doesn't want to get rid of some junk in their house? You know, so if you just put the word out to your friends and family and say, hey, we're having a garage sale in a couple months, anything you, you know, want to get rid of, give to us. We had we had enough. We have four. We had two weekends of a garage sale, four days of garage sale, and we had enough stuff left over for probably another two garage sales, but we were kind of garage sailed out. But, you know, it's $5,000, and that was you know, we were helping other people by getting rid of their junk and picking it up, and um, it was a kind of a, we did it with friends, and so it was a fun a fun thing to do too. So there, you know, there are some little things you can do, um, you know, to to raise part of that, and then look at some of those other ways. So. All right. Well, now we've talked we've talked about grants. We've um, both um, um, Becky as well as Julie have alluded to grants. And so let's talk further about grants. Obviously, grants are what everybody would want uh, because that's you know a, a way of getting money without having to pay it back. Sherry, there are direct grants and matching grants. Can you tell us what the difference is between those two? 
Yes, uh, a direct grant would be one that, um, for example, Show Hope uh, currently offers a direct grant, meaning that whatever money um, you qualify for or you know are eligible for, if there's those funds available, they grant that directly to um, that adoption. And they don't. Uh, none of these grant organizations that I'm aware of, most of them do do not ever cut the family just a check. Uh, that money is uh, directed towards the couple's or the family's adoption agency. And that way, you know, to help keep everything, you know, you know, on on the up and up level with integrity and so on, families aren't just given, you know, a five thousand dollar check. That money is given um, to the agency to help cover those expenses. And then, yeah, I had um, a question about that. It, and let me uh, direct this question to Becky. It seems to me that I have heard of of granting organizations who have asked the service provider, the adoption agencies, to also give a discount. In your, expense, in your experience, Becky, is that common with grants that, the, that, that they're expecting the agencies or the attorney or whomever is uh, providing the service uh, to also discount their fees? I can only speak for HelpUsAdopt.org. We never, we never ask the agency or the lawyer for a discount. I mean, our whole thought is like, you can't expect these adoption professionals to work for free. I mean, this is what they do for a living. Mm -hmm. This is what how they keep a roof over their head and take care of their family. so, you know, that yeah, I have not heard of that myself. That's not to say it doesn't occur. Um I've not heard uh, that that was not the case, you know, in our case, um that they had asked for that. Um you know, policy. Okay. So that is not common. All right. Well, yeah, I as far wondered. as I know, now what you may incur sometimes is if a family's adopting a special needs child that's already has, you know, maybe some sort of a grant program that's attached to that child through that particular agency. That may be where you know fees are reduced because it's a you know a special needs or waiting child through that particular agency. Maybe those fees are already reduced because of that. But I've not heard of anybody you know asking specifically for that. Um, I do then, know that some agencies have a structure where their fees uh, fluctuate depending on the family's income level. Yeah, it's called a sliding fee scale. I'm yeah. so glad yeah. you brought that up, Becky. Yeah. That's a very good point and one that. Uh, families who are struggling with figuring out how to pay for it. Not every agency does it, but some do. Yeah, and you are worth checking into for sure. Absolutely, and you may not be limited to working with agencies that are in your direct, uh, you know, within uh, within your state. It's possible to work with agencies outside, um, and so you can expand your search to agencies that might have a sliding fee scale. Um, yes. Yeah. And then uh, we were talking about matching grants. A matching grant would be where, um, for example, um, Life Song for Orphans offers matching grant. And I'm I'm looking at my grant chart here, and there's actually quite a few more organizations are going to the matching grant format. And I'm assuming it's to help, you know, facilitate more and more funds uh, for those rather than offering just the direct grant. And that is where the family needs to try to raise you know, whatever they qualify for, if they qualify for a $2,000 matching grant, the family needs to acquire donations of $2,000, and then the organization will then match it up to $2,000. And that generally requires um, a family to then, you know, somehow solicit funds from other donors. 
Um, as far as I know, the IRS rules would prohibit a family from contributing to their own adoption, you know, through a mansion grant. So, for example, if our family uh, qualified for a $2,000 matching grant, the donations that would come into that organization on our behalf could come from family members not within our own household. So, you know, my brother and my sister-in-law or grandparents or friends or neighbors could contribute to that, but my husband and I could not contribute to that. So if, if we had $1,000 sitting in a savings account, we're not allowed to put $1,000 towards our own matching grant. Does that make sense? It does, but what if you do a fund? What if you're not comfortable, as Julie mentioned? Uh, not everyone is comfortable sending out a letter to their or email or, or in person, whatever, asking for people to make a monetary contribution. But they would be comfortable doing a uh, you know an, an Italian night where they prepare a really right. fancy Italian meal and uh, have have it be a nice occasion, and they would be comfortable doing that. Can you use the money you get from a fundraiser towards a matching grant? As far as I know, the only way you could do that to, you know, comply with the IRS guidelines, for example, would be say if it was done through another organization. If the church hosted the event and raised the money for you and then they made the contribution, but you could not personally raise the funds say at a garage sale and then send in that money on with your name attached to it to those to those funds because the IRS is you know they have these organizations obviously need to be very careful um the guidelines that they follow on those matching grants and you know technically they're not allowed to you know attach those funds to a specific family uh by you know they honor that they honor you know when you say this donation is for such and such family they will honor that but by law they're not required to give that money to that specific family on on a matching grant does, okay does that makes sense yeah. it's it's kind of yeah, complicated exactly. and it can get a little sticky and you know I don't want anybody to t- to take the wrong information and take it the wrong way we need to make sure and Check hey guys, we are not tax providers. We are not, you know, so check with your own attorney for any specifics. Although, quite frankly, if you're applying for a matching grant, the people there at the granting organization yes. will know the specifics. Yeah, and make sure and just, you know, follow those rules really closely and exactly to make sure that you know you know what you're doing ahead of time, so that if you're not comfortable sending out fundraising, you know, letters or things like that, that you're not in that position to, you know, you know up front what you're getting into so that, you know, you know that if you're not comfortable doing that ahead of time, this may not be a grant that you're wanting to apply for unless you have some help from, you know, friends or neighbors or church members or whatever. Sherry, at Resources for Adoption, you have comparison charts for both grants and loans. We aren't talking about loans now, but um, in your on your comparison chart, do you see I think you mentioned that more grants are going towards the matching uh matching grant format and that yes. seems unfortunate I understand that uh I mean because it does make their money go further but it also seems I don't know it seems unfortunate uh, Yeah it does. For, for I understand the point but it does seem like oh man that's another now another hurdle to have to come over you know Yeah and the Becky, the Help Us Adopt dot org grant, uh, that's a direct grant or a matching grant? That's a direct grant. Okay. Now, 
uh, Becky, in the process, when people are thinking about adopting, when would they apply for a grant? At what stage would they be eligible? And, and you could speak both for the HelpUsAdopt.org uh, grants as well as any other grants that you know of. Yes. Um, the grant money is not startup money. Uh, most grant applications, you and specifically HelpUsAdopt.org, these organizations are looking to help people who are really um it's it they're adopting no matter what and if they get a grant it's a great relief but you're looking for someone who is so committed to bringing this child or children home that they're just doing it and so you need someone you need to be within the process and be working with your adoption professionals whether that is a lawyer or an agency um and you need to have a valid home study. Uh, I'm pretty sure that all grant applications ask for a valid home study, which just means, you know, we know that if you are awarded a grant that we are helping to put a child in a approved, safe environment. And that's very important, at least for our donors. That's one of the number one questions asked is how do you know that this money is going um, yeah. to put a child in a good situation? And because we have the home study, we know, um, or we know to the best of our ability. Right, best as anybody's going to know. They've, so, they've, and they've, we they've, at HelpUsAdopt.org, you know, we look for our money to be um, the last piece of the puzzle. We hope our dollars are the piece that, you know, if you've done everything, like, you know, watched your budget, done maybe a fundraiser or not done a fundraiser, um, taken on your second job, whatever you may have done, sell your third car, what, believe me, I've seen everything, um, and you're still coming up short, that's where we come in. So We want to relieve that last uh, pressure point. So what do you look for? I could only imagine that you get a lot more applicants than you have grants to give out. So we you're do. having yeah, I could only imagine there. So you're having to be selective. What do you look for when choosing people to receive your grant? Well, we're very straightforward on our website that we really do prioritize childless families for obvious reasons. Um I will never forget what it's like to have an empty house when you don't want one. And uh that will that sort of feeling I think will haunt me, maybe in a good way haunt me forever and keep me mm -hmm. motivated to keep raising more money. But we really do prioritize childless families because our funds are so limited. So um, that that's the first thing. The second thing is we really – this is not – just a handout so people don't have to write these adoption checks because I, I can speak honestly. I was able to write the checks for my adoption, but they weren't fun checks to write because mm -hmm. that was my savings account. That was our future. Um, and, and But I had the ability to do it. So um, we're not looking here so someone can go on their Mexican vacation this year. We're looking here because an applicant has said, look, I've done everything I can do, and I, I, I need to have a child. Um, we look for diversity in our clients. One of the reasons, or our grant recipients, one of the reasons HelpUsAdopt.org exists is because when we took a look at the grant organization landscape, um, there was nothing like HelpUsAdopt.org. We support all types of families. We support all types of religions. We support all types of adoptions. And we do not charge our applicants to apply. So we 
really, you know, like to show in each grant cycle the diversity of families in America. And that may mean heterosexual married couples, single mothers, single fathers, LGBT couples. Um, and we usually have a mix of domestic or international adoptions. And, you know, where we can, we give foster care grants. We don't get a lot of those of those applications um, because, as you be said, positive. for the most part, they are free. Yeah. But in some instances, there are you know, some fees, um, especially if you adopt from, do a foster care adoption from one state to another. There are some legal fees involved, and we have given several foster care adoption grants in our um, four years of existence. So, you know, it, it is the hardest part of what we do is selecting. Um, yeah, and people it. are adopting for many different reasons, too. That's the other thing is, um I think while infertility is the most common, there are degrees of infertility. I mean, we have cancer survivors. Um, we have people who have genetic defects who have had a biological child only to lose them very shortly after their birth. Um, and we have all sorts of types of families, and we just support family in general. Um, Sherry, Becky mentioned application fees, and I have talked with families who have spent a fair amount of money on application fees applying for grants. And, and you've got to be careful there because yes. it's, it's, it, there can be a racket going on where somebody is making money. They don't have many grants to give, but they're yes. making their money through application fees. How common is it, um, if you could just kind of generally tell us, uh, helpusadopt.org does not charge an application that, fee. Yes, Do other grant app, uh, grantors charge a fee and what should people be what's a reasonable fee to if you have to be pay if you have to pay one what's a reasonable fee to consider paying yes well uh, for example a gift of adoption fund does charge a $40 application fee but the family can ask for that application to be reviewed up to 3 times in 3 different cycles so you know that's obviously not just a $40 fee for you know that's that's going to carry you through 3 different cycles so that's not you know too bad um, there are a couple of others, um, like Sea of Faces, I think, requires like a $15 application fee or donation, um, and there's some others. Um, Life Song for Orphans and Show Hope do not require any fees. I would probably um, want to check into their 5013C status and make sure that they actually have listed on their website that they are nonprofit and do some further checking into that. This actually occurred last week where I'm checking into right now an organization that does require a donation to download their application. But as I've talked to people over the last year or so, nobody seems to know that they are granting anymore. And so I'm in the middle of kind of doing some investigation into them to make sure that you know, they are doing what they say they're doing with their money. I think your bigger, well-known organizations like HelpUsAdopt.org and, and Gift of Adoption Fund, Show Hope, and Life Song for Orphans, those those people all make all of their you know statements available, readily available. They they list their board, you know you know that they're doing what they say they're doing, and you know like Bess, Becky donates her time, and so she's not paid for you know anything she does. She's donating her time to help people, and she's you know that's more of a reputable thing. But I would definitely be very careful about the adoption, uh, the application fees, and do some investigating and checking into the background of that organization. 
and make sure, you know, they are who they say they are and doing what they say they're doing and at least list on their website some of the families that they've helped, you know, in the past year or so. Um, and there's also several organizations that are no longer accepting applications. Their programs are on hold. And that's kind of what I try to do is keep track of that. That landscape changes all the time, and mm-hmm. that information fluctuates so much, it's hard to keep track of whose programs are on hold, who's still accepting applications, you know, is that organization even in existence anymore. And that's kind of what I try to stay on top of and help families so they don't have to continue to research that. That can be overwhelming in and of itself, trying to find out all that information and keep track of all of it. How much, uh, Becky, how much can you expect to get from a loan? I mean, I'm not sorry, a loan, I'm sorry, a grant. Um, we're not talking about a matching grant at this point. I'm talking about a direct grant. Uh, you're saying that you want your, your grant to be the last piece of the puzzle. But going in, and, and if you need $5,000, is that do you even make grants of that amount? Because of Oh, yes. Well, that was okay. another reason we started HelpUsAdopt.org, because at the time, um, when we were researching everything, the largest grant out there, I guess four and a half years ago, was $2,500. Now, I'm very glad to say that since HelpUsAdopt.org came into existence, that organization has raised their high grant to $7,500. So I feel really good about that. Um, I feel that that's a positive impact we've had on the grant-giving community, but we came out of the gate saying our grants would range from $500, which we've never given $500, but up to $15,000. And the reason that we came in with that mentality was we wanted our grants to really be life-changing and make a difference. And our average grant that we award is $7,500. Now, we've awarded grants. I think our smallest grant we've ever awarded was either fifteen hundred or two thousand um, dollars, because we ask people to tell us what they need, you know, and then we really do review the finances to see if that number is true um, and realistic. But you know, everybody, I, the the best applications that I see, I will be honest with you, is when a couple or an individual comes to us and they're like, "We need four thousand dollars," and when you sit down and look at it. They really could use 10, but they have done everything within their power to raise the rest of the money one way or another or come up with the money one way or another. Mm-hmm. And they know that grant organizations have limited amounts of money, and if you only take what you need, truly need, it means there's something more for another family. So and true. when we get those applications, it really warms my heart because I think that just says it all about what the adoption community should be about, and it's about building families. Um, and we need more organizations who will give grants. We um, do. In the, yeah, in the, <laughs> We're not uh, enough. <laughs> that's, it's, I mean, it's very true, and it's a lot of work. I mean, I'm not telling I'm preaching to the choir here with you because, I mean, it's a, you have to find donors as well. Sherry, in the time we have left, I want to talk briefly about loans. Because that is another uh, way of of paying for your adoption. Uh, you also have a comparison chart at resourcesforadoption.com um, on loans. Obviously, I mean, you can go to the you could take out a second mortgage. You can do something, you know, get an equity loan in that way. Um, but but you're paying a fair amount. Are there loans that have extremely uh, loans that are available for adoption that have extremely 
uh, low interest rates? Yes, there are a few uh, loans that do offer 0% uh, uh, interest rates for a certain period of time. And um, the ABBA Fund is one of those, and also Lifesong for Orphans, we mentioned those earlier for grants, but they do also um, have an interest-free loan program. And then um, I think it's America's Christian Credit Union. They offer loans. I do not know exactly the percentage rate, and I think that percentage rate is going to fluctuate some. Um, And what I was going to say also is I appreciate the fact of what Becky has done with her organization, that they've made these available to all families. And I think families are going to have a little harder time finding uh, loans now with the economic climate the way it is because it's going to be considered an unsecure loan. And I think there again, families need to be really, really careful when they check into those to not be so, you know, desperate for the funds that they, you know, that it clouds their judgment on who they pick to help fund with loans. Because, um, you know, like ABBA Fund and a Life Song for Orphans and, and so forth, those are going to be for Christian married couples. So if you don't fall within that criteria, it's going to be a little bit more difficult for you to find um, places to loan. And um, you know, we we used um, some credit cards when we funded ours, and I would not recommend doing that. And, in fact, anymore, I think you're going to have a difficult time there, again, because the economic climate has changed so much in the last couple of years. But to really do research and to maybe, you know, ask for a list of references, if they can possibly, you know, give those to you of, of people who have funded through this organization to make sure they actually are legitimate and that, you know, you're getting what you what you say what they say you're supposed to be getting, and just to be extra careful with those loans. Um, there are some available, but I think it's gonna those are gonna be a little tougher anymore um, because it is considered an unsecured loan. I it don't is, know. absolutely, and I think yeah. now people are finding it harder. What are the warning signs that people should look for when choosing? And this will be our last question. What are the warning signs that people should look for when choosing a loaning organization? Because you know, you do. If it looks too good to be true, it probably is. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, one loan organization that claims to loan, I've been kind of keeping an eye on them for the last 18 months or so, and they haven't updated their website, and they never answer the phone, <laughs> things like that. So I would say you really need to talk to somebody live and in person on the phone, and get, uh, if if at all possible, if they're legally able to do so, give references and make sure it's really with a truly legitimate organization and not something saying they're just offering, quote, unquote, adoption loans. It may even have to be through, you know, your local bank where you can sit across the table from somebody and look them in the eye, and you know, and it's going to be considered unsecured, so it's going to have higher interest rates attached to it. Mm-hmm. But um, I would just be very careful and make sure you can talk to somebody in person and that somebody's actually going to return your phone call or something of that nature. And there again, just, just like what you said, if it sounds too big to be true, if it seems like it's just way too easy, way too enticing, I would be very, very careful and not allow your, you know, allow your judgment to rule rather than your heart in that in that case. And that's really tough to do. When but, you want a child so bad, it is. Right, yeah. And Which talk to why. other families and see what they've done and make sure there's not anything, you know, scammy going on. We received uh, a, uh, just received a rather lengthy email. I'm not going to have time to read it. The bottom line was the emailer wanted people to be aware, to think through the possibility that when you are asking relatives and friends for money, they might say no and how that will impact your relationship. 
I would assume this is particularly true with families. They may have a legitimate reason for saying no, but that it may be hard in the future to go forward with a relationship that it could damage it. And I think that's a good point worth mentioning. Thank you so much, Julie Gum, Sherry Sherry Walrod, and Becky Fawcett for being our guest today on Creating a Family. To get more information on Julie and her book, you can go to adoptwithoutdebt.com to get more information on Becky and on helpusadopt.org. You can, as well as to get information on her blog and Infertile Blonde, you can go to helpusadopt.org. Also, to get more information about Sherry and resources for adoption, you can go to her website, resources the number four adoption. Dot com. That's resourcesforadoption.com. Thanks for joining us today, and I will see you next week. I'm here with the Reverend Daniel Hendrickson, president of Creighton University, which was ranked the number one Midwest regional university by U.S. News & World Report for the 15th straight year. Tell us why. Well, Creighton offers an academically rigorous education in arts and sciences, in business, in health professions, and law. And we are so dedicated to the spiritual, personal, and professional growth of each member of the Creighton community. Creighton also continues to be a leader among U.S. Catholic and private institutions for the number of Goldwater scholars. Learn more about all of the university's academic programs at creighton.edu. Right now at the Home Depot, you'll save up to 35% off appliance special buys, like a GE Appliance's top-load washer and dryer pair with deep clean and deep rinse options, a reliable heavy-duty agitator, and four precise water levels, just $4.78 each. Wash, dry, save, repeat. Today is the day for doing with Spring Black Friday Savings now at the Home Depot. More saving, more doing. U.S. only while supplies last. Gas dry extra. See store for details. Valid through April 17th.